You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. To the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, uh, we are in full turkey hunting mode throughout the country right now uh several states um have just had their opening week um iowa is about uh, two or three weeks in we're getting ready to go into our fourth and final season and uh every 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 time i go onto instagram uh, i'm looking at turkey harvest pictures people turkey hunting whatever so i know that uh the country is balls deep in turkey right now and today we're going to be talking with one of the blog contributors of the sportsman's nation dan Bourne. and dan wrote a really interesting piece on what he called the five minute history of the wild turkey in north america and there is some really interesting facts um we talk about the population decline. We talk uh, about the population increase over time. We talk about turkeys going as far back as the age of the dinosaurs and like saber-toothed tigers and dire wolves and a whole bunch of really cool information about turkeys in uh, and, and their place in North America, I guess North American history. So it's just a really cool podcast today. Before we get into today's podcast, I want to do some quick housekeeping. If you guys are not subscribed to the Sportsman's Nation Whitetail feed, where the Nine Figure Chronicles podcast is, you can also subscribe to the Nine Finger Chronicles standalone feed, and that is a feed where all you're getting is the nine finger chronicles so if there's other podcasts you don't want to listen to on the whitetail feed on the sportsman's nation then uh that's what you need to do so before we get into today's podcast i just want to uh, send a shout out to ripcord arrow rest they've been a supporter of this podcast for a very long time since the very beginning and they make some bad ass arrow rests um you know, every time a commercial for this company comes up, it's really easy to talk about because I've had zero problems with their products in like over 10 years of using them, right? Zero problems in over 10 years. And uh, that's hard to say, you know, with a lot of products that are out there, not just in the uh, archery industry, but in uh, products in general. So it's an American-made company. It's a veteran-owned company. Um, it's made with made with the best possible materials, and it works every single time. And I think that's the moment, uh, you know, the moment of truth that we all talk about with um, with our archery products. You want it to work when that deer of a lifetime, or that elk of a lifetime, or whatever of a lifetime is coming through. Uh, you don't want your equipment to fail. And uh, dude. I just I love the company. I love what they stand for. Uh, it's a rest for bow hunters. I mean, you could use it in target archery too. But uh, you know, just go and check out their entire line at ripcordarrowrest.com. Uh, take a look at all that they offer. They have limb-driven systems, and they have uh, what else? Uh, string-driven systems as well. It's a drop-away rest. It's the, one of the best drop-away rests on the market, hands down. Very confident saying that. And uh, so, go check out their product line. Now, with all that said, let's get into today's podcast with my man, 
Dan Bourne. Dan Bourne, how the hell are you, man? Good, Dan Johnson. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, let's see. I, I forget now. Are you in North Dakota or are you in Minnesota? I am in Minnesota. Minnesota. Yep. Okay, cool. All right, so you're in Minnesota. Has all the snow melted up there already? Almost all, not all of it, though. There's still some uh, spots on uh, some northern slopes where there's still some snow poking out. Yeah, man. Did you guys just get hammered this winter? Yeah, it was a crazy winter. I can't remember it being this bad for since I was a kid. Um, we just got like 8 or 10 inches just a couple weeks ago. So, um, yeah, it's been a crazy, in terms of snow accumulation, it's been a, it was a pretty nasty winter. We also saw a negative 38 wind chill, or excuse me, temperature with negative 54 wind chill one day in February. So it's been nuts. Boy. Yeah. I remember that week when that, uh, I don't know, the polar vortex came through the Midwest and I'm okay with cold, but there comes a point when I had to walk outside to start my truck before, you know, I, you know, I had to get the kids ready for school or go outside while it's still dark out to start my truck and let it warm up while I get ready. And it just sucks all the <laughs> heat right out of your body. And it's like, imagine having to walk even, even like a hundred yards with no shirt on or, you know, just regular clothes in that man. That would be, that would That'd be crazy. Yeah, it was brutal. I mean, your equipment starts to break down. My truck wouldn't start for two days. And then when I did start it, I blew out a power steering uh, seal gear or gear seal. Yeah. And uh, it just causes havoc on everything. It was it was nuts. I can't imagine what. It's amazing that wildlife can survive yeah. through something like that. Right. Absolutely. And uh, that's one thing that, you know, I'm going to throw in a very slow transition here and we're going to be talking about the history of Turkey in North America today. But um, I noticed that there was a bit of a, a Turkey population decline. And I say that because comparing it to past years while Turkey hunting, Man, we would see way more turkey. We would hear way more turkey. And this year was a huge decline. And it could have been, you know, a variety of things. But I think the winter took its toll on Mother Nature this year. Yeah, I'm curious to see how many, um, you know, dead deer turn up in the woods. Uh, in, in terms of turkeys, there has been a, a general decline. I think uh, that's being reported. People are really noticing it. And, uh, you know, we could kind of kick it off like that or, or book in that for the, for the back end of the conversation. But there is, yeah, there's a, since a, I think a population high in 2001, there has been a, a slight decrease in Turkey populations, especially Eastern turkeys yeah. uh, across the Midwest. Right. And I do want to get into that, but before we do, um, uh, you are a contributor, just to let everybody know, you are a contributor to the Sportsman's Nation. And this article is, you know, you're going to get a, um, uh, I'm, I'm suggesting that everybody goes to the sportsmansnation.com. Check out this article. It's uh, really well put together. Lots of great bullet points and uh, information about the wild turkey there. We're also going to talk about it today. And that's why I wanted to get you on the podcast because it is such a great article. Um, we'll talk about it here as well. And, uh, have you been out yet this year at all to hunt? So Minnesota's uh, season started this weekend. Uh, I have, so Minnesota has five turkey seasons, like one week blocks in the spring. Yep. And the, the first two are by lottery. The second three are over the counter. Uh, and r one really cool thing in the fifth season, if you haven't filled your tag from the previous uh, weeks or seasons, you can try to fill it then but i got a uh, we had there were surplus tags this year so i ended up picking up a second weekend oh nice um, i usually hunt third weekend i love to hunt third weekend i feel like the weather's kind of really getting great usually yeah. on third but i'll be on the road for uh for uh actually i'll be in boise for the backcountry hunters oh, um, awesome rendezvous that week so awesome. yeah i'll be hunting next weekend for for birds cool cool all right so uh you have yet to go out and uh try to get it done but uh in in seasons past is like there's been years and this year was one of them where 
man, you just find the right place. And I just like year after year, I, I find myself going back to it. Number one, because I love hearing turkeys gobble in the roost and fly down and strut mm-hmm. a little bit and then, you know, eventually shoot them. And this year, uh, right off the bat was like that for my wife where um, we got into a real good spot, put the decoys out. And then all of a sudden, uh, one gobbled down the fence line. We made a quick adjustment and uh, he gobbled two more times in the tree. He flew down. He gobbled one time, came up on top of this ridge, and my wife shot him at like 6.05 in the morning, right? I mean, it was oh. just like the perfect setup, right? Now, does she have – has she been hunting turkeys very long? Uh, this – I think this is her fifth turkey she shot. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah. More experience than me than me. I'm pretty new to it. And it's uh, – yeah, that first time you hear a gobble – when you like generate a gobble from your call <laughs> yeah. sitting in the wood, it, I can only imagine, I've also never elk hunted before. Right. I can only imagine it's what like hearing an elk bugle is like, oh, it just feel, you can feel it in your chest that, that roar of the, of a big Tom. Yeah. Uh, it, it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's such a cool experience. Now I will say someone who has been very close to an elk bugle and who has been very close to a Turkey bugle. I I'm going to, I'm going to say as much as I love Turkey hunting, Hearing, uh, you know, an 800-pound bull elk bugle at 50 yards just makes turkey hunting seem irrelevant. Uh, it, 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 uh, is, yeah. it is crazy. I mean, you want to talk about a sound that gets into your body and it makes, like, I don't know. I don't know if there's a necessarily a sound that can make me, like, just uh, be closer to Mother Nature than a bull elk scream. Uh, it is... It's nuts, especially with a bow in hand. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's like, all right, it's 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 on now. Yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, it's yeah. I, I you know, we're we're fortunate on our on our little farm in Minnesota to have a lot of turkeys. There's no elk, so uh, I I'll have to make do with turkeys until I draw that Wyoming elk tag. That's right. I've been putting in for for a couple of years now, but yeah, I've you know I tend to go back to the same spots as well. We have a uh, on our farm. There's a uh, an oak, kind of an oak bluff. And a lot of the turkeys will roost below the ridge of that bluff uh, in a kind of a steep drainage. And, you know, you set up on the edge of a field right by that, right by that stand of oaks. And you can pretty consistently call them uh, in the morning. I'm not consistent in shooting them. I think I've, I've only been hunting for three years for turkey and I've, uh, I think I've only bagged one so yeah. far. I, last year I hit a deer on my way to turkey hunt, my turkey hunt. Oh, so <laughs> I came out ahead in meat because I ended up salvaging most of the deer, um, but didn't get turkey hunting. And then my second year, I just had the worst case of buck fever since I was a kid on a, on a, on a turkey instead of a deer <laughs> and, um, just totally fired over, uh, the turkey's head. So, Hey, I've been there, man. I've been there. I still get fired up when a, a big strutter walks in as well. So it happens to the best of us, man. All right. So history of Turkey. Now, my first question to you is why, why did you write this article? Oh, so uh, I, I've been kicking on the idea for a while now of trying to write an article on whether it's a wild game species or even something kind of like a conservation uh, figure or something for someone to read that's maybe only five, 10 minutes long of a read and can provide as much information to, to the reader. I personally, whenever I go out into the field after a game species, especially a new one, love to know as much as I can about the species. You know, before I went out to pronghorn hunting in Wyoming, I read, uh, I think it's just called pronghorn by Valerius Geist and a couple other books on pronghorn. And to me, it gives when I have a, bit more of a historical context it makes the hunt all that much richer you know it's not just about going out and knowing the strategies to kill an animal but kind of inserting yourself into this uh framework this historical context and to me it adds a lot of it makes the hunt all that much better yeah and i i agree right it's cool being able especially with you know turkey hunting or deer hunting right those are the two uh, deer that are animals that I hunt the most throughout the season. Right. But knowing some history and some background and some facts about it, and it, it allows you to have a deeper conversation with other people. 
right? And even if it's something simple like, you know, you, in this article you wrote some turkey trivia, right? A turkey has between 5,000 and 6,000 feathers on its body. Like, that's just cool stuff to know. And I think that if hunters can have a little bit more uh, of that information and share that information to someone, let's say, like a non-hunter, that just someone, you know, it gets them interested in the animal as well. Yeah, and and it gives you a a whole different experience, too. I mean, I kind of go back to when I was a kid. I had a good friend of mine who, by the age of 14, had memorized all these uh, baseball player statistics. Like, you could just tell. Right. You could just run off the top of his head lists, you know, runs batted and strikeouts and home runs. And when he watched a baseball game, he watched that baseball game much differently than I did. Yeah. So to me, it's kind of the same thing where you look, you're looking at the, looking at a hunt much differently than someone who was just, you know, walking out there without much prior knowledge other than like, I know if I, how to kill this animal, but I don't really know the animal. So that was kind of my idea. I've always been kind of a trivia nerd anyways, and I enjoy doing this kind of stuff. And, um, I thought the turkey would be a good first article to write on, being that it was turkey season, and it's it's kind of the to me the indicator of the new hunting season is is my first turkey hunt of the year. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I want to kind of go all the way back to the beginning of I guess North American history, or the first time really that the wild turkey was brought up in conversation or historical documents or anything like that. Do you have any information for us on that? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the Turkey came over or the ancestor to the Turkey came over, uh, no, from science at least, but millions of years ago. Right. So, but by the end of the Pleistocene, uh, the Pleistocene was, if you think of all like the giant, those giant megafauna that are extinct, mastodons, you know, saber tooth cats, dire wolves, that was the Pleistocene era. Um, which is the era that precedes our era, basically. And um, so during that time, the the turkey had basically fully evolved into four kind of turkey species. There was the turkey, as we know it today, we'll say the eastern turkey, the oscillated turkey, the southwest turkey, and the California turkey. And... The, the Southwest and the California turkey were located in the Southwest in California and eventually went extinct, extinct, excuse me. So uh, the reason those guys disappeared was a combination of a, a couple of things. There was environmental factors, um, like say an unusual dry spell, as well as uh, human, um, relatively new humans on the landscape. So what they think happened to these guys was there's a dry spell. The birds and other species are forced to locate themselves around ever dwindling water resources. And that just left them open to overpredation. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, humans definitely weren't the only ones hunting them. If you look at the La Brea tar pits in California, there are, um, I think more Turkey, the wild Turkey is the most, represented avian species, bird species in the tar pits next to only the golden eagles. So you'd have, you get, you'd have turkeys stuck in these tar pits. Golden eagles would fly down, try to grab the turkeys. They'd get stuck. And then, you know, much like happened with like large animals around those tar pits, it just preserved them over time. So that is nuts. Well, the end of the, yeah, it's crazy. I've never been there before, but there's just all these preserved species of extinct Pleistocene era, um, you know, megafauna buried in tar, but also a lot of turkeys and golden eagles. Crazy, crazy. Um, I think there was something like 791 individual turkeys have been found in those tar pits. Huh, that's pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. So they've been on the landscape, I guess, a long, long time. Uh, the, the reason the eastern and the oscillated really didn't die out over time was because of their location on the landscape. So they had more, little, generally more water, more forested areas and just tougher country to traverse kind of kept them going. Uh, but you know, as early as the 1500s when, what's his name? Hernan de Soto, um, 
from Spain was cruising around uh, South America, they had, you know, they had already uh, domesticated wild turkeys. Uh, the, I think it was the Mayans and the Aztecs had, had domesticated turkeys. And, you know, early settlers to the U.S. noted flocks in the thousands in Missouri and Texas um, and across the kind of the, the southern plains. So and they've, been, they've been on the landscape a long, long time. Cool. So, you know, just like the American buffalo, like everybody, I almost feel like everybody knows the story of the American buffalo, right? The American bison, um, millions and millions of these things running all over North America. Uh, the white man comes in and completely destroys the species, you know, kills millions and millions and millions of them. And did they do the same thing to the wild turkey as well when, you know, the Europeans started, you know, progressing west through the country? I don't think it was like a concerted effort like you see with the buffalo in some research. I think it was just a matter of there was some market hunting involved for sure. But there was also, think about how like uh, the plains were transformed during that time from a great plains setting to agriculture. I mean, if you look at a, like the Dust Bowl era, right? So everything was being converted over. In fact, I mean, when the the turkey was found to be such, such good tasting meat that they were actually brought wild specimens were brought back to europe domesticated there and then the pilgrims when they came over brought turkeys with them so they were essentially bringing them back to where to where they started so it was this weird case of you know kind of their prodigal son returning we we had we removed turkeys from those those early folks brought turkeys back to europe domesticated them and then brought them right back um but in terms of like over time, I think largely it had to do with changing landscapes and a, a large scale agriculture and market hunting uh, to the point where by the 19, early 1900s, there was an estimated, I think it was 300,000 turkeys across the United States at one point at its low point. Okay. Whereas in the modern day, you'll, you'll have that many turkeys in, in Wisconsin alone. Wow. So, uh, just because of the change of the landscape, um, that had a huge impact and like the human population, it, it just pushed them into, uh, a different, I guess, area and they had to learn to adapt to that area. Yeah. I, I mean, there was definitely overhunting and overshooting, like pretty much that whole, that whole era of the 1800s kind of exemplifies that of, of a thought of unlimited usage without thinking of where it was going to end up. But I, I think it largely has to do with the agriculture, some overhunting, and it kind of pushed wild turkeys down to a couple areas uh, in Missouri and in Appalachia that were just so rugged that they could survive, but they also weren't booming their population. I mean, they, had a high enough population to survive in those areas, but they weren't expanding outward. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the population dropped through the, to the 1920s pretty low. And then when the conservation kind of ethics started to kick in, the Turkey was one of those game species that was recognized as valuable and, and worth saving. And a lot of work started to happen from the 1920s forward to, to, to bring them back up. That's awesome. All right. Now, this this stat I'm going to say, or this fact uh, that I'm going to say, like when I close my eyes and I, ju I see the American bald eagle, you know, on everything that has to do with America, right? Um, like I just can't imagine a wild turkey being on, let's say, a dollar bill or people wearing shirts that instead of this soaring bald eagle, it's got like a, a strutting Tom or something. You know what I mean? Like, um, and the reason I say that is because <laughs> Benjamin Franklin, uh, he actually wanted the wild turkey to be America's national bird. Yeah, he saw the turkey as this very proud. I mean, we've anyone that's hunted him can have seen it, right? A strutting Tom is a perfect example. It's kind of head up, proud, uh, kind of fierce bird. Uh, I think where it gets lost, to the, even by maybe Franklin's time, was domestic turkeys are, are largely seen as relatively kind of stupid and gullible animals. Yeah. Um, I mean, my, my grandfather used to say that that a, a farm turkey, you know, if it was raining out and it stared straight up at the sky, it would probably drown itself. Like, they're just not <laughs> smart animals. So, 
so I think I think that uh, that was already going on that screen I saw. But yeah, Franklin was kind of onto something. Um, bald eagles, as as you know, majestic as they appear and as they are in the American mindset, are they're you know they're scavengers. That, you know, and they they're known to rob other birds of you know food. So kind of unscrupulous characters, and 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 Franklin saw the turkey as a better. Uh, image. I mean, it would kind of be, you're not, you're definitely not going to have a, if it's a painting of a, a bald eagle soaring through the air or a turkey throwing itself down a ravine, <laughs> you're not, the, the, you know, the, the image of flight is much, is much more majestic right. with the eagle. But <laughs> right. uh, it's hard to beat a strutting tom, though. The image yeah. of a strutting tom is a pretty hard thing to beat. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, um, any, anything else, uh, as far as, um, I guess at the beginning of the the nation, you know, as we as we grow as a nation, any other influence that the wild turkey had over the the growth of America? You know, as I said they, previously, they they were brought back. Their their yeah. their flesh was found, or the, the meat was found to be so good that they were domesticated in Europe and brought back to the U.S. Um, but you know, by the end of the nineteenth century, the thirty thousand birds. Uh, had been, I think I think it may have said three hundred thousand. I think it was thirty thousand birds were left. Okay, thirty thousand uh, in, in the country. Not yeah, not three hundred thirty, uh, which is what we have in Minnesota and Wisconsin um, each. I think. Um, so in you know in the nineteen twenties, there started to be the conservation movement, and wild turkeys were were kind of on the list of animals that what they wanted brought back. Uh, and it, it was a rough start for to do that. You know, we didn't know how to do. It. We've never we'd never done that before. Like the concept of restoring any animal to a landscape had really never been done before. It, that's I think one of the things we take for granted when it comes to talking about America's conservation success stories is that it's it was even as late as the 1920s we were forging new ground and how to do that. And in terms of turkeys. What they started to do was um, they didn't know what to do exactly. So they they started trying to raise captive turkeys, and you know raise the eggs, release them into the wild. That didn't work because the captive or the captive wild turkeys, the offspring just didn't have the survival strategies. So they were they were you know wiped out pretty quick. Um, there was some trying to crossbreeding between wild and domestic birds. Uh, that didn't work. And it wasn't until, uh, I think it was the 1940s, there was this idea of interstate cooperation where I believe Minnesota traded Missouri for, uh, I think Minnesota gave Missouri 85 rough grouse. And in return, Missouri gave Minnesota 29 wild turkeys that they had uh, captured, live captured and just released in the wild in Minnesota. And that strategy was what finally worked to start propagating wild turkeys on the landscape again, much in the same way uh, elk are being reintroduced in places like Kentucky and Tennessee, where live elk are being transported from the West and reintroduced in areas that historically held elk, but haven't held elk in a long time. And that's how turkeys took off. So I think Minnesota did that in 1973, and by 1978, there was already, uh, Minnesota had its first turkey season. I think 94, 94 turkeys were bagged that year. Man, that's a pretty cool stat. And it just shows you that, you know, if left alone, uh, a species can rebound in the, in the proper conditions fairly quickly. Right. I mean, and I don't want to say that 29 wild turkeys exploded into 300,000 in just a couple of years, but it, you know, in a handful of years, but it's, it's crazy to see that in 1973, right. They were introduced into Minnesota and then five years later, they had a hunting season. So the, the conservation effort worked good enough to where the, the state said, okay, it's, it's good enough now that we can start a hunting program. And uh, do you have any information of whether that was just like a draw or they only gave out 90, you know, a certain number of ticket or a license or tags, or do you have any background on that? 
I don't. I, I don't off the top of my head. I think it was just a limited draw type entry. You know, you'd apply for a license and give you one. It was, it was, it was uh, located, I believe, in the southeast portion of the state was where those uh, turkeys were released, kind of along the Minnesota-Wisconsin border, corner, the southern southeast corner of Minnesota. So it was probably like, you know, six or seven counties in that area that, that they had the, the hunt in. It wasn't, certainly wasn't statewide. Gotcha. Uh, and then it just kind of kept expanding. Uh, I mean, even in, you know, growing up in the 80s, I don't remember seeing as many turkeys in our farm. And then in the 90s, all of a sudden, you just start seeing them in flocks. So it it was, yeah, it's a cool story. It happened all around the country, certainly not just Minnesota. I mean, to go from 30,000 birds by the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century to 6.5 million in, in 2001 right. is, and it involved, you know, those early efforts were very human heavy. We, right, we had to raise them, we had to release them. And what it really involved was, getting, you know, a regulate, regulatory structure in place and bringing the right birds in and just kind of letting them do their thing. I mean, wild turkeys are a lot like wild deer or white-tailed deer in that aspect. They actually do pretty well with the human landscape because of they're, they're like white-tailed deer, edge habitat's a big thing. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think uh, over the years... You know, that, like you said, the, the turkey population throughout the United States uh, has grown. And now, oh, what, what did I see here? It says, uh, with hunters harvesting an average of 5,000 turkeys annually in Minnesota alone, for some reason, that number seems low. Yeah, it does. And I'm, I'm wondering if I missed some zeros. Like, I don't, maybe I dropped a zero from the 300,000 and threw it over there. I don't think it is, though. <laughs> I think it's probably, I think it, I think it is 5,000. It's not nearly as much as Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I think we have 30,000 birds in the state. So 5,000, that's probably about right. Gotcha. Um, and now I don't know if that's spring season or, or combination of fall season is what we do have a, the spring season, which is Tom's only. And the fall season is, uh, puncher's choice, essentially gotcha. Tom or, or hen. Gotcha. Uh, and then, you know, also in the seventies, it, it needs to be noted in 73, kind of the same year that they were reintroduced to Minnesota was the formation of the Wild Turkey Federation, which, right. you know, they've done so much work in terms of bringing the turkeys from where they were uh, to where they are now that it's, it's just a group that, that kind of needed to be there, I think, for that success to happen. So definitely if you're a turkey hunter, check out the Wild Turkey Federation. It's, it's a worthwhile um, organization to be part of if you like hunting wild turkeys. Gotcha. All right. Um, do you have any cool or any additional cool facts about the turkey, whether that's uh, throughout the landscape or history or just like from a biology standpoint? Yeah, uh, the, yeah there's some pretty cool facts. Look, you know, they have an interesting story, which is, goes back to trying to know as much as possible about them when I'm hunting them. Uh, and it's not just useless trivia, right? There's uh, you can actually, which I did not know this until I was researching this, you can tell a turkey's sex by its droppings. And I don't know why this is. I'm not that in tune with turkey anatomy, but, you know, males' uh, droppings, I guess, are J-shaped, while female droppings are spiral-shaped. I've never seen that play out in the wild, but I'll probably start looking for, for that kind of sign. Right. Uh, in terms of size, you know, male turkeys will go, on average, 17 to 21 pounds, but... In 2015, there was a 37 and a half pounder shot in Kentucky. That's Whew. a massive turkey. That's crazy. That's, that's like bigger than a lot of butterballs that you know you get from the right. get from the uh, grocery store. That's a I can't. I gotta imagine that was a giant, a giant bird seeing that thing strutting up. Um, My uh, stepbrother you know, shot one that was 34 pounds one year. No and, kidding. Yeah. That did he have it recorded? That must have been some kind of record. Uh, I mean, close. I don't know. Uh, he, I don't know. He just weighed it, you know, just like we always do. Uh, we weigh our birds. We measure the spurs and we measure the the beard. And we didn't. I guess it was just a wild turkey, so we really didn't ever think to, um, uh, you know, put it in, you know, and and call anybody or do anything with it. But uh, it was, yeah, it was thirty. I guess thirty four pounds. It was wow. the. the the picture of him holding it up the wing, wingspan and the, t- the picture that uh, they have of it makes the bird look gigantic 
I mean, my, my stepbrother, he's probably only like five, six or five, seven or something like that, but still him holding the wings out and the, the beard or the, the body itself is just really impressive. It's, it was huge. I mean, the wingspan on the biggest toms can get six feet. So, I mean, they're big birds. Yeah. Um, I mean, have you ever seen a, a car that's been hit by a wild turkey? Yeah. I mean, they, they, can, right. do some, they can do some damage. Yeah, it's like getting hit by um, a bowling ball. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's always how it's described when right. you got hit by a bowling ball. Um, but, you know, I'm sure most people know this. There is, we have the wild turkey is kind of broken on into four sub, five subspecies. Uh, Eastern being the one kind of I'm most familiar with. That's what I hunt. Uh, you know, that's located from Minnesota south and east, except for most of Florida. Uh, in Florida, you've got the Osceola, which covers most of Florida, the Rio Grande in Kansas, Oklahoma, Central Texas, thereabouts. And then the, uh, Miriams scattered kind of throughout the west, mostly east of the Rocky Mountains. And finally, the, what, the one I always forget about is the Gould's turkey, which is in Mexico. Right. And so that's kind of like the, the five subspecies. Plus, you have the oscillated turkey, which is in South America only. There might, I think there might be a couple floating around the border. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, there's it's turkey hunting is a huge. I mean, you, you can go for the grand slam of, of turkey hunting and get all those birds. It's a real achievement. And you get to travel, you know, to some pretty cool parts of the, all around the country to chase them. I myself have only shot at Eastern. I'm hoping to go out to the Black Hills. I believe there is some uh miriams in the black hills of south dakota just to uh to chase yeah that's my goal someday i want to i want to get the grant the north american grand slam right the four that we have in north america and uh um let's see the rio the miriam the eastern and then the uh the osceola down in florida right that that's the north american grand slam yeah, it, it, yes, I believe it's. I believe that's the Grand Slam. Yeah, those four. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, maybe the fifth is a Super Slam, like the, the Goulds, maybe, yeah. or is it the Oscillated? I don't know. I don't know the Slams very well, but either way, if you're if you're knocking out four of the five, that's uh, a diverse range of, of of country you get to hunt across, which is, you know, I love hunting on my farm, but the concept of cruising across, you know, Central Texas, chasing Rio Grande would be pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, and I think there's even, uh, some kind of subspecies and maybe it's one you've already mentioned that is down in Brazil or somewhere in South America in the jungles. I think that's the oscillated and it's okay. technically a different species. It's like a cousin of, okay. Of what we know as the wild Turkey, um, where we have the wild Turkey with its five, uh, subspecies. And then this oscillated is kind of on its own, uh, it's in the Yucatan Peninsula. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool, man. Um, and, I mean, it's that's a, it'd be a cool bird to chase, too, just because of, like, we have our historical context. They have theirs down there. I mean, the we kind of touched on it before briefly. The Aztecs honored the wild turkey as kind of a representation of a trickster god, right? So they had religious festivals built around the wild turkey. They not only consumed its meat, but also, you know, made used its feathers for uh to kind of adorn themselves made necklaces headdresses jewelry uh you know there's probably a lot of mines cruising around with spur necklaces i can only imagine uh so it's yeah man there's a really rich history outside of the u.s as well outside of the you know the, the 50 states as well uh, on the continent it's it goes back a long time yeah what con- what state has one of the biggest populations is that tennessee biggest populations of uh, turkey i would bet somewhere along the in the southeast would be where the largest populations are yeah i mean tennessee you know those are kind of those areas where they held on the longest yeah this tennessee missouri ozarks uh yeah i would i would think something like tennessee would be ideal for for huge turkey populations i know i know i've read wisconsin has huge numbers as well but i don't i don't know um, but yeah, I, if I, if I was a betting man, I would bet somewhere around Tennessee, Missouri, um, Arkansas would be probably the large populations of birds. It's, it's such an ideal climate and terrain for them. Absolutely. Cool, man. Um, what else you got for us? Anything? Well, you know, when I was writing this, I, I didn't really look into the, 
why they were declining. So birds are declining, but the more I heard about it, I read about it online a lot. You know, hunters complaining about lower turkey numbers, published reports confirming that turkey numbers are dropping. I kind of wanted to look into that a bit as well. It doesn't provide the best bookend to a story about turkeys, but it is kind of where we're at. Uh, you know, wild turkey populations peaked, I think, right around 2001 at 6.7 million turkeys. And they've dropped a little bit down to about 6.2 million. I'm of the optimistic bent that that simply has to do with the conservation success story of wild turkeys was so good that it, the population of turkeys ended up maybe exceeding the landscape in some areas. And there's a natural reduction uh, to bring it back to optimum levels. But there's also, you know, vegetation management's big uh, with, you know, loss of CRP land, the loss of natural grasslands, agriculture, that's going to affect turkey populations. They do like, you know, mixed edge habitat, much like white-tailed deer do. Um, I, I, the science I'm reading suggests that it's less about predation from, say, coyotes. I would imagine raccoons put a huge dent in turkey clutches and more about the continued production. I mean, turkeys by nature lose a lot of their clutch. They lose a lot of eggs either that never hatch or the young die. I mean, turkeys are heavily predated upon, but the uh, the ability for a hen to produce eggs has always seemed to outlast that predation. And if hens are producing less eggs, that's when we, that's when we have the problem from what I've been reading. Um, but I like to think that it largely the decline has to do with carrying capacity and a relatively natural or expected drop to in certain areas to just kind of find that optimal level of, of population and resources for them on the landscape. So they are dropping. I'm, it's not as drastic. I don't, I don't think as, as some people think, I think, and, and you know what, if you're neck of the woods or if you're hunting land is all of a sudden missing turkeys, it feels drastic for sure. But along the kind of the greater scope of the wild turkey in America, the numbers have, have dropped a bit, but I'm not overly concerned yet. I'm optimistic that it has, has to do with uh, just population numbers and suboptimal habitat and the turkeys adjusting to those landscapes. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's just like everything, right? And, and I feel that that's expected when you, you know, when you, implore a or i don't even know the, the right word when you when you apply a conservation uh method to a specific landscape the the habitat you know it, it's it's ongoing right it's not just like here's the goal and we're going to keep it at this forever right that's not how that's not necessarily how conservation works right it's a it's almost like a yin and yang a yo-yo right i mean um, sometimes the conditions are going to be better. Sometimes they're not. And, you know, and I, as we all know, and just from the, you know, the human growth throughout the world, uh, they're going to be, you know, redistributed into different places and they're going to be, uh, you know, taken away in some and added to other. And, you know, sometimes, like you said, the, the, the environment isn't going to be able to sustain that at you know that number at that particular time so it's going to go down and um i bet you if you looked at statistics about conservation um, or reintroduction of animals or anything like that right before you see a decline you'll see like a, a natural decline you'll probably see the animal at its peak or almost i don't want to say overpopulated but to the point where it becomes almost too much for its environment then let's say your uh, your DNR or your state agencies or whatever step in and say okay now we can raise the hunting limits or we can change things to lower you know keep it at i guess a better suited level if that makes sense oh for sure 100% i mean there was never kind of this great north american model of conservation it was never meant to be to make it a zoo, right? It, right? It's not preservation, it's conservation. So numbers are going to be changing. The outside stimuli is going to be changing. It's not meant to be in a bubble. And by and large, wildlife agencies, I think, do a great job in, in managing populations and knowing when to raise pay limits, knowing when to drop them. Um, and, you know, much like the wild uh, white or the white-tailed deer boom, was it there? Was it like 
mid nineties, late nineties, kind of these, there's just deer everywhere. Um, yeah, they, you can exceed a landscape and it, it, it's at the expense of the species itself to keep propagating. So they, they can slow down. Yeah. Um, with, even without, you know, our land managers and wildlife agents definitely help kind of guide the, especially locally guide the, the populations, but that's something that happens naturally as well. Species will, will increase production and decrease production based on resources. Yeah. Uh, and it, it is a dynamic, it's a dynamic thing. It's not, it's not, um, like I said, it's not a zoo. It's a dynamic, ever changing thing. And, and wild turkeys are actually, when it comes to species, it's wild turkeys like white tailed deer are, are huge winners on, on the kind of human interface. So it's, I'm not, I have, I have optimistic uh, thoughts for the future of wild turkeys. I think they're, they're definitely here to stay. Numbers might drop, numbers might stabilize, say around 6 million. Maybe they drop lower, maybe they go higher. But um, Ben Franklin was right. They, they are a symbol of certainly of, of conservation. I mean, they are one of the conservation success stories. So it's every time you see a wild turkey, you should consider it a huge win for, for hunters <laughs> and for wildlife. And the cool thing about this is, you know, we, we often talk about, you know, trying to get more hunters or, you know, get more hunters, right. Uh, you know, get people who are not hunting now. We want to bring them in so that we can continue on our tradition and, and, you know, like, uh, there's a word, uh, recruitment, right? You know, we want this hunter yep. recruitment. Um, I think that wild turkey is a great place to start because it's, compared to deer hunting, it's easier, right? It It's more vocal. It's uh, it, There's less, um, I, I feel like a, a turkey during the perfect conditions, right? I mean, Whitetail, you just got to sit there for the most part. You got to be really quiet. You can't move. You have to ha- take smell into consideration. Um, with turkey, you can be – it's it's an active hunt, right? You can go to where they're yep. gobbling. Um, you can call. There's a call response. And, um, yeah, I mean, it would probably be best to have a new hunter sit in a blind. But at the same time, you know, it's active. It's actively hunting. And I think that, that if you ever want to take a friend – or a family member or somebody out hunting for their first time, I think right now wild turkey is a great place to start. Oh, I agree. Even if you even if you don't see a bird, like just I remember my first time kind of fumbling through a, a series of calls on a on a, a box call or a slate call and hearing a response, hearing this just roar of a couple toms down in this ravine on this beautiful sunny day it you feel it you feel it in your chest and it, it hooks you yeah i think i mean what white-tailed deer is the easy go-to because that's how we all most of us grew up hunting but yeah wild turkey small game animals like rabbit and squirrel are great for first-time hunters but that wild turkey does have that extra hook of the engagement between you the hunter and the and the animal itself right i mean you small game you don't really get that white-tailed deer you kind of get that but it's not the same um white-tailed deer you're more engaging in anticipating where they're going to be when they're going to be there especially if you're looking at you know specific bucks but i've never heard anyone be be picky about a tom coming in you know you know i don't think there's a target tom you just you feel that you feel you hear that 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 um gobble come out and then you see them cruising in with their tail fans big i mean it's a huge impression on a on me still let alone a new hunter it yeah, I, I would agree. It's take somebody out turkey hunting. It's yeah, just fun. Absolutely. Well, Mr. Dan Bourne, man, I really appreciate you taking time to hop on uh, the podcast today and uh, drop some knowledge bombs on us about the wild turkey. And uh, um, I guess what I'll say is just, you know, for the listeners, keep an eye out because Dan writes some really good articles for the Sportsman's Nation. So be sure you head over there. Uh, he has his own profile page with uh, um, tons of great articles on it already. And uh, man, thank you. Oh no, a pleasure to be here. I always love coming on. And you know, for any readers out there, definitely check it out. And if you have any suggestions, I'd like to write more of these kind of mini biographies in the near future. And if there's anything anyone wants to see or read about, let me know. I'd, I'd love to dive in and do some research for everybody and and give you guys some uh, some ter- some trivia to think about when you're in the turkey woods or the whitetail woods. I'd be happy to do it. So let me know. I'm I'd, I'd 
I really enjoy doing this stuff. I, it, I geek out a little bit on it. Um, but like I said, it really makes my hunch better knowing a little bit more about a species. And I hope that works for everyone else as well. So yeah, let me know. I'd, I'd love to hear what you guys are interested in, hear what the listeners are interested in in terms of topics they'd like to have covered on, on the blog. And there you have it. Uh, the last comment Dan made was about you guys reaching out to him uh, in regards to information you would like to know about a topic that we covered today, right? The history of the wild turkey. If there is a, another history of type article or in-depth article about public land or he's really into all that stuff. So if you want an article, um, you know, to read an article about things like that, you know, historical events for conservation throughout North America, um, you know, animals, wildlife, water, you know, any conserv- anything conservation related, um, hit him up and, you know, hey, hey, Dan, I'm curious about this. Uh, what about writing an article about it? I swear to God, the dude loves to talk about that. So uh, keep that in mind and uh, reach out to him if you have any suggestions. Other than that, huge shout out to all of you guys for taking time, as always, to listen to this podcast. Go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts to leave a review. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast, Prime, Ozonics, Ripcord, Wasp, Lone Wolf, and Hunter Safety Systems. And uh, I'm going to keep the outro pretty short today. Uh, You know what to do on social media. Make sure you're following everybody on the Sportsman's Nation, especially the Sportsman's Nation. And uh, if you're going to be in a tree, please, our friends at Hunter Safety Systems are reminding us all to wear your damn safety harness. Have a good rest of the week.